Welcome to Southbridge. If this is your home church, glad you're home. And if you're a guest with us, we're glad that you've taken a risk and come to the theater to meet with us. After a time of worship and praise like that, I, we sing these songs to the Lord and we try our best to have it be pleasing to Him. And I just wonder who has the right to speak about Him. We know that His creation speaks for Him. And we sing songs as His created people and hopes that it's um, appropriate to our Savior. What a great morning we've had so far. And now we have the privilege of opening up His Word as we do every week. And this morning we're continuing our entrusted series. And I'm looking forward toward this morning. It's a, it's a chunk of scripture we're going to work through this morning. I think God will give us the grace to get through it. I've been praying uh, for a few days now that uh, the Lord would just give us a word in such a way that we would leave as changed people, even as Adam prayed for us this morning. And uh, I thought I would just start off by uh, saying it's been an interesting summer, hasn't it? I don't know how you're wired, um, but when we reach 104 in temperature, I feel like I have the right to talk about it and complain about it. I do not do well in the heat. I glisten often. And um, the higher the temperatures, the shorter my um, pleasantries um, come along. And uh, this next week, I don't know if you've been able to do this this summer, get away at all, but this next week we take our annual trip to Michigan. And we go to the west side of the state, Muskegon, Michigan. We visit with my folks at a a Bible conference where there's teaching in the morning and evening and there's stuff for the children and it's right on Lake Michigan so you can enjoy the lake and it's a little cooler there. It's a very humid. It's not a dry heat. It's a wet heat, which all heat is, by the way. And uh, the thing that we dread most, my wife and I, about this trip, and I think I've shared with you before, our church family, is um, the 15 to 17 hour drive we have and uh, in our minivan. And we have not figured out the best time to leave. We've done the put them to bed in the van style. We've done leave in the morning. And let me be really honest with you as one of your pastors. Let me be um, just transparent with you if I can. It all stinks. <laughs> so I'd like for you this week, we'll leave on Friday, sometime to submit to me via email ideas by which I can stay awake. Now let me tell you what I've done. I've taken two of the five-hour energy drinks at the same time. I've gone into the gas station and bought the drinks that have the crazy faces on them, like angry faces that are like this big, and they're supposed to, I'll, dr I'll drink them all. Throttle. Throttle. Monster. <laughs> see, I don't need a drink to make me a monster in the van. I just need my kids to ask me, can we have a snack again? <laughs> that brings out, how can you be hungry? Oh! <laughs> they ask that question over and over again, can I have a snack? No, you can't have a snack. But I can have one, right. <laughs> so if you have any tips, I really appreciate that. It's, it's, it's a dreaded trip for us. We are afraid. The trip intimidates us. We are afraid of the miles. And it gets to the point, as the closer we get, the faster I get. So I'll be transparent with you. Um, I go as fast as I want to go because I have this belief. When the cops stop us, they'll look in the van, see the four kids, and say, I get it. Let's keep going. I'll chaperone you. <laughs> Come on, follow me. Wee-oo, wee-oo. I said, you don't need sirens. Your kids can be the sirens. Let us roll down the windows. Ah! Here's the one question, though. Let me ask you and see if uh, you have good anticipation skills. What's the one question, the most famous question that all kids ask on the way to vacation? What is it? Are we there yet? Yeah. See, here's the deal. Here's my new, here's my new um, trick this year. I'm going to say yes every time because we actually are on vacation while we're driving to vacation. I'm not at the office. I'm not answering emails except the tips that you give me to stay awake. So I'm going to say yes, we are. 
and just leave it at that and let their faces just turn puzzled. <laughs> Where's grandpa and grandma? They're on vacation. Well, where are we? We're on vacation. Isn't this fun? <laughs> but are we there yet? It's an already not yet issue. We are already on vacation while we're driving to vacation, but we're not there yet. This is a principle that we see throughout the scriptures, actually, already not yet. We are citizens of the kingdom of God. We are a part of his family, but we're not with him yet. We sing these great songs about our eternal home, and yet my home is also in Durham. Already not yet. Home is where the heart is. My heart is with the king. Already not yet. The Lord calls those that are in his family holy, and yet do I live a holy life? I sin all the time. Already not yet. He sees me as holy because he sees his son in my life, and yet he's refining me. Already not yet. So take your Bibles, open up to Luke chapter 17 as we continue our entrusted series. And we're going to look at this principle, this already not yet principle, and see how it fits with this idea of being entrusted. If you remember over the last several weeks, we've been taking a look at the things that the Lord has entrusted to us. Money, time, forgiveness. He's given us forgiveness so that we can be free with forgiving others. Last week, we looked at a tough passage that the Lord entrusts us with pain so that as we learn about our dependence upon him. And we know that when there's a dependence during times of pain, we have a dependence on him. It can lead to wholeness in him. We recognize that we need him. We want him. We need him to exist at all. And so we've looked at some tough scripture about the things the Lord has entrusted to us. And I think this morning, we're going to take some time looking at what should we entrust ourselves to. Same word, but different direction. So look at Luke chapter 17 as we continue this series We'll just go verse to verse together. Look at verse 20. Once having been asked by the Pharisees, we've heard about them before, really smart people that know the word. They work really hard on doing good things, and they're always asking Jesus questions, usually to trick him. But this one actually seems to be an honest question and a question that any typical Jewish person could have asked or would have asked. Once having been asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, when is it coming? Jesus replied, the kingdom of God does not come with your careful observation, nor will people say, here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is within you. Now, this is where we see the first time ever, I think, the question, are we there yet? They're asking a time question. Is it time? Is it time for the, the kingdom to be here? And the answer is yes and no, which are our least favorite responses in Scripture. Yes and no. See, according to Matthew chapter 12, verse 28, and Luke chapter 17, verse 21, the answer is yes, the kingdom has come. But according to Luke chapter 19, verses 11 and 12, and other scriptures, several other scriptures, the answer is no. There is a coming to the kingdom. There's, it's still arriving in the future. So which is it? This is an already not yet principle. When Jesus says the kingdom does not come by your careful observation, he's, he's saying that the kingdom's arrival is not going to come with a big parade. It's not going to come as they anticipated. See, they anticipated that they could mark down on their calendars that the Savior would arise up, the Messiah would rise up with them as a people, and they would see this Messiah overthrow the Roman oppression, and that they would see God's people take basically rulership of the world. And they were hoping that they themselves, these Pharisees, and typically common Jewish people would hope that they would then also be a part of just reigning and ruling on the earth with the Messiah. And Jesus is essentially saying that the kingdom's arrival is not going to come with big fanfare. And so this would have been puzzling, puzzling to the people that studied God's word. He's undoing some of their belief. It's, he says it's different than that. The, the arrival of the kingdom is different than that. Jesus says something really strange. Did you catch it? He says that the kingdom of God is within you. 
Your translation might say among. It's among you, or it might say it's in your midst. In the Greek, um, this word kingdom can sometimes also be translated as kingship. So Jesus is saying in this point, I believe that the kingship is among you. The kingship is in your midst. It's, it's within you. In one sense, Jesus is talking about the kingdom. He's saying his kingship, that you really want to see the kingdom? Here I am. I'm the king. Nice to meet you. My name's Jesus. But see, this is not what the religious people were looking for. He wasn't the kind of king. So they'll say back to Jesus, yeah, I see you, but I'm looking around and I don't see the throne room. I don't see um, the big castle. I still see that I'm paying a lot of taxes to Rome and you've got these guys that aren't really that great of guys following you. That doesn't look like a kingdom to me. Jesus says, the kingdom, the king is among you because I'm here. I'm, I'm in your midst. In fact, the scriptures, we sang songs about this this morning. Um, Revelation says over 45 times that Jesus is the king. We sing these songs to Jesus that he is seated on the throne. The Bible says that Jesus is the king of kings. That's a tough concept for us since we don't really have a king in our day. Most of us are the king or queen of our own lives, though. And Jesus is saying that the kingdom is not going to come by a big parade with the Messiah being the last float. That's what they're anticipating. Jesus declares that the kingdom or his kingship is, is basically spiritual in essence. In spiritual, where, wherever God is truly recognized and honored as the king, there one finds the kingdom. See, where that is happening, the lives of people, you'll begin seeing evidence of the kingdom within. You'll start seeing evidence of the king's uh, character and his quality in the lives of those that honor him, the Lord, as their king. You'll start seeing subjects, and you'll start seeing that they're living in a way that reflects the king, that is, the kingdom. However, Jesus never denies that there will also be a glorious, visible manifestation of God's kingdom at the appointed time. Already, not yet. So if you're a note taker, write this down. So the already principle is this. Here's the already principle, that the king is here. The king is here, and he came in humility. The king is here and he came in humility. Look at, uh, as Jesus continues his teachings, he's talking with the disciples. Now look at the next verse. We're learning about how the king is here and he's come in humility. Then he said to his disciples, the time is coming when you long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. Men will tell you, there he is or here he is. Do not go running after them. For the Son of Man in his day will be like the lightning, we sang of this this morning, which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. But first you must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. See, the king is here, Jesus is saying. And we know that the king came in humility. Jesus refers to himself as the son of man around 80 times in the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We call them the Gospels. And those who knew the Old Testament well knew that when this Jesus was saying of himself that he's the son of man, they knew that he was using language from the prophets of old. In Daniel chapter 7, we can read, and let's look at the scripture together. I'll read it for you. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Do we have it? All right. Let me find it. It's in here. My copy might not have it. Ezekiel, what's next? Yeah. I went to Bible college. Here we go. This is Daniel chapter 7, verse uh, 13. In my vision at night I looked, and there before was one like the Son of Man, 
He was as if he was a man, but the firstborn of all creation, come, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. Does this sound familiar? His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. See, these are the very songs that we're singing in 2011. There's nothing new. We're singing the truth of Christ. And so Jesus, as he's speaking to the disciples, he's using language that good Jewish boys and girls would have known from the prophecies of Daniel. He knows what he's doing, by the way. See, Jesus fulfills hundreds of prophecies through his life, prophecies about the sent one, about the Messiah, about the Savior. And see, people have debated over how and when the Messiah, the Savior, was going to come back. However, with Jesus, it's simple, which I'm grateful for. See, if you walk into the Christian bookstore and you go to the eschatology section, the, the things of the study of end times or the last things, you'll see books after books after book, and everyone is right, they feel. And yet they disagree. So with Jesus, it's simple. And let me tell you this, always go with Jesus when it comes to the study of end times. Go with what he says. So with him, it's simple. He's arriving and he's going to come back. That's it. Isn't that so simple? He's arriving and he's going to come back. And the rest of our text will be teaching us on how to be prepared. He says, he's basically saying the world as it is is going to come to an end and Jesus is going to remove sin and usher in a perfect world that never ends, the kingdom of God. That's how simple it is. And everything's going to be okay for those that have entrusted themselves to him. That's it. However, what people do is they do exactly what Jesus says not to do. Jesus said in our text that when people say, here it is or there it is, don't go chasing after them. Don't go pursuing them. Christians have been known over the years, and then other cults have been known over the years, to make predictions of Christ's or the Messiah's return. And people have given up jobs and quit their life in attempting to reach others for the glory of Jesus Christ because they've put their hope, their faith, in the calendar. Is found in this, you can see this in the scriptures, the Thessalonians, this brand new church that Paul helped plant, the Thessalonian people, they heard of the Christ's return, they were taught of these things, and so what they did is they quit their jobs and essentially waited on the hilltop for Jesus to return. And it took their elder, their, their teacher to come back and say, listen, go get your jobs, there's a lot of work to be done before the kingdom comes. There's a lot of kingdom work to be done. Don't take your eyes off the mission, Paul says to them. So we have a not yet principle. We have the already principle in that the kingdom is, that the king has come and he's come in humility. He's come to seek and save the lost and we'll get to that in a moment. We also have this principle that the king is coming and he'll return in majesty. So that's the second point here. The not yet principle is this, is that the, kingdom, the king is coming and he'll return in majesty. See, Jesus says that the kingdom of God comes unexpectedly. Let me read that for us again. As he shares with his disciples, Verse 20 says, For the Son of Man in his day will be like lightning, which flashes and lights up the sky one end to the other. Jesus is saying that the return is going to happen, but it's not going to happen in such an observable way, like it's going to be a real slow, ramping way. Now we know that on the seventh day it's going to be Jesus. He says it's going to happen unexpectedly, but it's going to happen blatantly. It's going to be obvious. There will be no confusion. Everyone will see. But here's the question Will we be ready? 
How can you be ready for something unexpected? Unexpected things happen to us all the time. Emergencies happen upon us, don't they? Tragedies happen upon us. But here's the insight we have. We know that Jesus is going to return. You don't know necessarily when an accident's going to happen. So what would it look like to live in such a way where we lived knowing day to day that today could be today and to live today as if Christ is going to return? Does that mean I go to a hilltop? No. It means I live on his mission that he set his followers upon. I can remember a few years ago, maybe I shared this with you, um, I think I was studying some things at the time about Christ's return and uh, at that time, we just moved here to Raleigh, and we were living in the apartment complex across the street over here at the Preserve Apartments. And at that time, there wasn't as many apartments in Briar Creek as there are now, and so people were building apartments. And what they would use to build apartments is they would push the dirt around and excavate the land as they'd, I think they'd use dynamite to blow up rocks and stuff. And so I think I shared this with you, but I was, one, t- one day Amanda was gone with our two oldest. We only had two kids at the time. Now we have 20. And uh, it's four, really, but it feels like 20 sometimes. And so Amanda was gone with the two babies, and I was in the apartment by myself, and I was in the freezer rooting around for something healthy, I think it was. I can't remember. And uh, I heard this horn. I think I was just studying stuff about end times, and I heard this horn, and it was, and I'd been reading scripture. We sing songs about the trumpet, right? And it was loud. And Amanda, isn't this right? They would blow this horn so that people knew, I think, the blast was about to come a second later. And they would do the blast. Are you familiar with this? All you guys that know about construction and gals. And then this rumble came. And our pitchers would shake. And I went like this. I sucked in all the oxygen of the apartment. There was no oxygen. There wouldn't be enough for you if you were in there. I was ready, I think. Ah. Oh, where's that pizza? Yeah. I want to know what it's like to live as if today could be the day. Jesus is saying this. It's, it's here. I'm here. The king has come. Trust in me and trust yourselves to me. But the kingdom is coming. I'm coming again. And it's going to happen in a way that's so obvious and so blatant. No one will miss it. Like a lightning flash in the sky, lights up the whole sky. That's what it's going to be like. He's giving a taste of what the day of his return will be like. And Jesus will come in majesty. He continues to tell us why the kingdom is coming and not here yet. And it kind of goes back to the last point about how he came in humility. Look at verse 25 again. And this is such an important verse. If you're an underliner, underline this verse. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. See, that is a principle, that is a truth, that is a mission that does not jive with the popular view of the day of what the Messiah would be like. A king doesn't come and suffer. A Messiah doesn't come and be rejected. Everyone accepts the Messiah. And so Jesus is saying something that's opposite their view of what the king and kingdom is all about. He says, before the kingdom comes, first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. What is Jesus speaking of here, loved ones? I'm sure you know. He's speaking of the cross and all that leads up to it. I don't think there's a Sunday that goes by that we don't mention Christ's death and resurrection because Jesus is our king. He is our only hope. And if there's no cross, then there's no kingdom to be a part of for us. This points back to his humility. That Jesus came as a suffering servant. The book of Mark depicts Jesus as the servant. 
And no king lives like this. Jesus says there's many things that the Son of Man, that the Messiah has to suffer. He needs to be rejected by his own people, unaccepted by many of his own family, ridiculed and put on a cross, bearing the punishment, the judgment, the justice of God the Father for sins he never committed, but because of his great love, he would take our punishment upon himself so that for whoever would trust in him could now be seen as worthy to be in relationship with God the Father. This is huge for us. This little sentence here is significant for us. This is our way. This is our pathway into the kingdom, that our king came and served and yielded himself to us. See, without this, we have no invitation to join his kingdom. Apart from the work of Jesus on the cross and his subsequent resurrection, there must be a resurrection or he's just a man who died. He has to defeat death on our behalf. Apart from these two things, there's no kingdom for us to be a part of. And think about what Christians have already been given because of the fact that Jesus came in humility. Because he died on the cross, we have atonement for sin. It's been paid for. How could we possibly pay for our sin on this side of hell to atone for our, how can we do it? How can we atone for our sin that we've committed against an eternal God? We couldn't. It took the Lord himself, who is God, an eternal being, to take upon our sin, to take our sin upon himself so that we can have a relationship with God. What else has been given to us because Jesus came in humility? We have God's spirit that's been given to us to those that will trust in him. We've got, we've got holiness that's being produced in our lives already, not yet, principle. We've got the king's joy. We've got peace. We've got patience all on this side of the kingdom. So even though at the time Jesus said there was work to be done, he gives insight as to what the days will be like when he does return with his kingdom. And that's the next section here. Let's continue on. Luke chapter 17, verse 26. Just as, just as it was in the days of Noah, so also it will be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking and buying and selling, planting and building. But the day of Lot left, the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. Jesus gives two examples of what it will be like in the day of his return. Two examples that the people that were hearing these examples, these disciples, and any other onlookers onto this teaching would have agreed and said, yeah, that's what, how it was those days. See, what Jesus has going for him in these passages, when he makes references to Old Testament stories, everyone believed them. And we live in a day where people say, you know what, I'm not so sure if no one in the ark really happened. Here's another tip. Always go with what Jesus says. Because <laughs> the problem with that is that Jesus believed it. <laughs> he believed these stories happened. And he's using them as an example of what it will be like the day that he returns, what people would be like. Maybe remember the story of Noah? God demonstrated favor toward Noah, not because Noah was so awesome. Favor means grace. And so by God's grace, he enlightens Noah with the information that he is grieved that he's made man and that men are inventors of evil, including no one in his family. No one is righteous, no, not one. And yet by God's grace, Noah responds to the invitation to build this ark, which became basically his cross. And no one in his family obey the Lord in a ridiculous way. They just do what he says. 
And the scriptures also tell us in 1 Peter that Noah was a preacher of righteousness, which would mean that he would tell people to repent and turn from their ways. It's possible that he even said, repent and turn from your ways and join me. And we know the rest of the story, that Noah and his family obediently took the Lord at his word, entered into the ark once it was made, and the Lord closed the door. Some people project that maybe the Lord had to close the door because Noah was unwilling. But Noah, the Lord closes the door on Noah and his family, and the rains come and the floods come, and everything is destroyed. But we get this little insight from Jesus about what the days were like then, and what does Jesus say the days are like? People just did what they do. They didn't take the warning. They didn't believe in the word. That's how it's going to be when I return. And then he gives another story, the story of Lot. So you can read the story of Noah in Genesis chapter 6 this week. And then in Genesis chapter 16, I believe, you can read the story of Lot. Or 19, excuse me, Genesis 19. God tells Lot and his family that, listen, I'm going to destroy, I'm going to destroy Sodom. Its people are wicked and everything. they're inventors of evil. What they do is an abomination to me. And so by God's grace, he lets Lot know of the plan. And this one is a little tougher because it actually takes Lot. Lot needs some nudging. They're so entrenched in the city. His family is so entrenched in the city that they need some nudging. They need a special visitor from God to plead with them to come out. In fact, Lot pleads with his sons-in-laws to come. And the sons-in-laws say, forget you. We really like it here. So they're slow to move, and a messenger from God gets them pushed out. And by the time they get out of the city, the city is destroyed with fire and brimstone. Lot's sons-in-law. And Jesus is using these two stories as an example of what it'll be like when he does return because he is returning. And when he does return, here's what it's going to be like. Um, people will get up probably in the sixes and go to work. They'll work hard maybe till five. Sometimes they work hard, sometimes they don't. They just want their paycheck so they can live Friday through Sunday. Sometimes people go to church, sometimes they don't. And they live a life for themselves and they just want to get ahead in this life and they get encouraged from people to say, just follow your heart. And people will get married and have exciting celebrations, and there will be funerals sometimes, and people will worry about their wills, and some people will get together with friends and have a party together. Just everyday kind of things. That's what it will be like the day that Christ returns. And Jesus is using these examples to say that people will not be prepared. They will not be prepared. Jesus says, just like in those days, it will be the same when he returns. People will ignore the warning and will simply be about their business, unaware, unprepared, and unwilling to entrust themselves to him. And that's what we have to decide. We've been looking at what God has entrusted to us. We have to decide, will we entrust ourselves to him as our king? And ultimately then in preparation for his kingdom. Look at verse 30. It would be just like this. On the day the Son of Man is revealed, just like the story of Noah and the story of Lot will be just like this. On the day the Son of Man is revealed, on that day no one who's, who is on the roof of his house, people used to hang out on the roofs of their house in those days, with his goods inside should go down and get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife? Whoever tries to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. Jesus is basically saying, what are you longing for? What have you entrusted your life toward? We've been asking and looking at what Jesus has entrusted us, but what are we going to entrust our life toward? Our 401k? Our big vacation plans? 
to whom or to what do we entrust our lives to? These are the questions that we have to filter our lives through because we know as we look at days past, we know that people did not entrust themselves to the king and they did not take God at his word and they missed out. When Jesus says the phrase remembers Lot's wife, he's referring back to that story of Sodom that's being destroyed. And as God is graciously nudging Lot and his family out, God says, don't even look back. And the scriptures tell us in Genesis chapter 19 that um, Lot's wife turns back and looks at the city, and then she is turned into a pillar of salt, uh, of salt in God's judgment. When the text says that she looked back, the better translation is that she longed back. She had an affection for the city. She misses her city and what her city was about. So when she was being pushed out by the pleading of her husband and the special messenger from God, she wasn't really wanting to do that. She wasn't entrusting herself to God's word. It was leading. She was really longing back for her days, for her times, maybe for her stuff. Maybe it was for her job or her comfort, or maybe it was her secret sin that she didn't want to let go. Jesus says this phrase, remember Lot's wife, as a form of warning. And these folks here in this story would have said, oh, they would have taken note of that. But we've come to a place in 2011 where we're just kind of rocked to sleep. And the warnings kind of subside. And anyone that gives a warning about Christ's return, they're just crazy. The scriptures say that upon Lot's wife's longing glance back that she incur judgment. And the Lord does judge. Jesus says, whoever tries to keep your life will lose it, and whoever loses their life will keep it. Sounds like if you want to go up, you got to go down. If you want to go down, you got to turn left to turn right. <laughs> really formulaic. And what he's saying, basically, is that Jesus is warning, don't live in this world as if you're living for it. Don't entrust yourselves to things that are here today and gone tomorrow. And trust yourselves to the king. We have to ask ourselves, are we like that? Are, are the things that we are calling for and have caught, that have caught our attention, are they greater than him and the mission he's called his followers to be on? That's what people on the outside of the kingdom do. Don't lose out on the kingdom because you've given your life to something else. Jesus is, is saying, lose your life in the wake of God's love than to find life. Lose your life in the wake of God's love and, and following his desire, his word, his decree. And isn't the notion of running back downstairs to grab some stuff on the day of Christ's return sound ridiculous? <laughs> Here you see Jesus shining up in light of Jesus says, hey, no one should go to their basement to pick up some stuff real quick. Well, I got some camping gear I gotta get real quick because I don't know what heaven's gonna be like. I need a special pillow. Jesus says there's no time for that. Don't, learn, don't long back for your stuff. Don't go get the scrapbook. Don't go get the old family photos, which have value in this day. But fix your eyes on Jesus. Is stuff wrong? No. Owning stuff isn't wrong. It's when stuff owns us, right? Isn't that the maxim? Jesus says there's no time for that. When you see the sun approaching, you have to decide, am I prepared? Am I living prepared for his, his approach? Am I living prepared for his return. We have to ask ourselves, then, what distracts us now from the king? Not only on that day of his return, what's in the way of us following the decrees and the commands of our king? Jesus gives a warning as to why one ought to take inventory of their life. Look at verse 34, and we're going to wrap up here. Jesus says this as warning. I tell you, on that night, two people will be in bed. 
One will be taken, the other left. Ah, so it's going to be at night. At least we know that. No, because look at the next verse. Two women will be grinding grain together. That's usually during the day when they're working. One will be taken and the other left. Jesus is saying that when his return is upon us, it's going to bring division. People that have entrusted themselves to the king and those that haven't. It's a strong warning. Verse 36 is left out in the NIV, and you may just see where two men are working, one is taken and one is left. What Jesus is saying is that when the kingdoms come, everyone will not be given admittance. And that's a problem for our culture because our culture says since that God loves everyone, everyone's in. However, the scriptures don't teach that, and whenever you see a conflict with what someone says versus what Jesus says, what should you go with? Go with Jesus. It's so simple with him. That's what's so beautiful about him, about our Savior, is that he's simple. He's not trying to trick anyone. You don't have to be a theological master. Children wanted to pursue him, and he says, let children come to me. He says, if you have faith like a child, my children believe the simplest things of God. They just take it as a matter of fact. I come up with all the debate. Don't believe the lie that everyone's in. Right here, the passage says that one is taken and one is not. One goes with him to his kingdom and one is left for judgment. And then the strange verse, verse 37, look. So the disciples basically interrupted the question. Remember the Pharisees asked, when? Are we there yet? And the disciples asked a different question. Where is this going to happen? Where is the return going to be? And Jesus gives this proverbial statement. I think it's from the book of Job, uh, chapter 30. Where there is a dead body, there, will be, there the vultures will gather. Let's pray. <laughs> what? The answer is actually a cryptic answer. They want to know like where to be looking out for it. Where will this take place? Where will the lightning strike happen? Jesus is using this proverb as a way of saying it will happen. And when it does, it will be obvious to all. Another way of saying is wherever there are those who are spiritually dead, there the final judgment will overtake them. People say today, I'm a spiritual person. Well, everyone has a spirit, I believe. Everyone has a soul. But not everyone is intense on or intentional about entrusting themselves to the king. That's what it means to be spiritually dead. We are poor in spirit, those that are in the kingdom. That means I recognize I bring nothing to the table. I need you. Lord, I depend on you. My pain shows me that I need you. You've given me so much. You've provided forgiveness. A spiritual Spiritually alive person is one who's been touched by the Lord. They're awoken to him, and they say, I want to follow you with my life. And when I mess up, I'm going to say sorry, because I want things between you and I to be the best they can be, because I know you're returning, and I want to be with you more than life itself. To live is Christ. If I'm going to live for you, I want to live for you in such a way that other people get to know you. But to die would be, the gain, would be gain. And here's the truth, loved ones. Here's the tough truth that might not be taught at every church in our, in our fair city, that we are all either in the process of dying or we're one day closer to Jesus' return. And so we got to be our, about our right business. And that's where the emergency, in a sense, comes. And that's why we preach so hard. That's why Scott is so feeble to preach God's word to us and not placate to us in these days. It's because he wants us to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. So as when we live, we live on mission for him because that's all that matters. And when we die, we get to be with him. Or when he returns, we get to be with him. 
That's why our mission, our vision is to connect people to Jesus for life change, not connect people with good truths to help them live a better life. So here's the truth about the kingdom. Are you ready? When it happens, you won't miss it. But not everyone will be a part of it. When it happens, you won't miss it. But you may not be a part of it. I challenge you to meditate upon that thought. It's not going to happen in such a way that you weren't sure what happened. It will be clear, Jesus is saying. And will we take advantage of knowing this scripture to entrust our lives to him? So the king has come in humility, and he'll come a second time in majesty. Will we entrust ourselves to the king now in preparedness for his kingdom to come? And you, you may ask, well, how can I prepare myself now? How can I entrust myself to him? And that's the best question you could ever ask. And here is the truth response. Trust in his grace. Take him at his word. Noah and Lot were saved not because they were awesome. They were saved because they took the Lord at his word. They were saved because of God's grace. It came toward them and warned them. They took out his word. They believed in him and what he said, and they entrusted themselves to him. I'm going to take you, Lord, for what you said over what anyone else is saying. And today may be the day where you, in your heart, you tell the Lord, Lord, I want to trust in you. I believe that you're the way, the truth, and the life. I believe when you said you're going to come back, you're coming back. And whether I die or you come back, I want to be with you. Please forgive me of my sin. Help me begin a relationship with you today. And your eternity had just then been changed. Here's a scripture for encouragement, and then we're going to pray. It's in 1 Peter chapter 1. And the scripture is for believers. Therefore, in light of the days that we are in, and the day that is approaching, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. He is our hope. He is why we sing. He is why we live. He is why we ought to entrust ourselves to him. Will you pray with me? Lord, for this day, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the truth. Thank you for coming as the humble servant to seek and save the lost. And Lord, we're banking on your promise of your return when you come in majesty. And we want to be with you. Strip us, Lord, of anything that's in the way of us following you and and being on mission of blessing our world and making the gospel known through what we think, do, and say. And Lord, I pray for anyone here this morning that has come, that is not trusting in you, has has been a skeptic up to this point, Lord, that you would just wipe the uh, skepticism aside and let them, by faith, like a child, trust in you. And we will give you the glory for the life change that you will bring about. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.